0: of things to come, but the substances of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak into our hearts, into our lives, that we would rightly know you, know your word, know what your law requires of us, But most of all, that we would know the hope of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. People can have a complicated relationship with rules. Clearly, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) On the one hand, rules are important. They're a necessary part of a functioning world, a functioning society. We can't have order without law. On the other hand, some rules are rather silly. They seem to be unnecessary. And we all can have a certain tendency to be rebellious. You might remember a certain old song Sign, sign, everywhere a sign, do this, don't do that, can't you read the sign? Talking about signs, and why do we need all these signs, why do we need all of these rules? Some rules are rather strange, some rules are even rather humorous. I learned this week that in Canada, it is illegal for margarine to be yellow, because it might be confused for real butter. I guess it's easier to believe it's not butter if you're in Canada. (laughs) When we were in Alaska, we would go fishing for salmon. And we were essentially trying to snag these fish. They're running to spawn and to die, so they're not interested in eating. They're not interested in bait. But as long as you would snag the fish in the mouth, it was a legal catch and you could keep the fish. If you snagged the fish anywhere else, you had to throw it back. Kind of a strange rule. It doesn't really seem to fit. It doesn't really seem to conform to reality. One of the frequent criticisms of Christianity that's offered by the world today is that Christianity is just a bunch of rules, a bunch of legalism. And then you all don't keep your rules anyway. You're just a bunch of hypocrites. You've probably heard something like this before. Many in the church hear this critique of legalism, and so they try to get away. They try to distance themselves from anything resembling law, resembling rules in the church. But God has given us law. He has given us an eternal and unchangeable moral law. It is summarized for us in the Ten Commandments and the Two Great Commandments, and it shows us how we are to love God and how we are to love neighbor. Now, that law is clearly stated in Scripture, but it is also written on our hearts. God, when he created us in his image, wrote that law on our hearts. Now, Adam, having broken the first covenant, plunged himself and all his descendants into sin and death. And part of that is the law written on our hearts is distorted. But we still have broken fragments of this law written on our hearts. And we know and desire to a certain extent to keep the law, and we see this all over the world. Why does every nation say, for the most part, that it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to steal, things like that? These moral universals that are held everywhere. This is because the law of God, given to us as part of the image of God, though distorted, though fallen, though corrupted in sin, does remain to a certain extent. But on the other hand, we also know that we, being fallen and sinful, we are all lawbreakers. We know what is good and we don't do it. We know what is wrong and we do it. In fact, we are incapable of keeping God's law. So navigating our proper relationship with God's law can be difficult. Many have erred, on one hand, in believing that keeping the law saves us somehow, or some combination of grace and works makes us righteous before God. But then an error, on the other hand, is to ignore the law altogether. Say things like, well, if, if we're in Christ, all our sins have been forgiven, so we don't really need to worry about law and obedience. So we see here two opposite errors. We see the error of legalism, which is making the law do what it can't, trying to be saved by law, trying to be made righteous or made more righteous under the law. And on the other hand, we have antinomianism, anti-law, despising the law, thinking nothing of it, ignoring it altogether. Now, beyond these errors, the law is subject to additions and distortions. You could hear something like, well, if X is good, you know, whatever biblical command there is, isn't more of X or X plus Y better. There are legalists who try to save themselves, try to justify themselves by the law. There are also legalists who add to the law and go above and beyond it. They always love to impose new commands, more rules. This is not a new problem, though, for as we look... In the book of Colossians, we come back often to this Colossian heresy, which is what prompted Paul to write this letter. It was some sort of syncretism, some sort of attempt to combine Christianity with Judaism and with paganism. And what this boils down to is the Colossian heretics are pressing various kinds of legalism. They're trying to add rules. They're trying to distort God's law and add to it, add things that... Well, if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to be in the in crowd, there's these things you have to do on top of what God has commanded. They have determined that the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, as taught by men such as Paul and by their pastor Epaphras, is not good enough. They've got the secret sauce. They've got additional knowledge and philosophy and law-keeping, and that is what really counts. And so in our passage today, we will see some of the forms that this legalism takes, and we will see Paul's rebuke and condemnation of them. So the first component of this legalism, of this new law that the Colossian heretics are trying to impose, concerns celebrations. This is what is taken up in verses 16 and 17. The second is speculations, taken up in verses 18 and 19. And then the third component is regulations, taken up in verses 20 through 23. So celebrations, speculations, and regulations. And what Paul is doing in this passage, he is urging these Colossians to reject these legalisms and hold fast to the gospel of Christ. So first we will look at these issues of celebrations in verses 16 and 17. So what Paul is looking at here, what he is concerned with here, is the particularly Judaistic, the Jewish aspects of the Colossian heresy. The parts that concern the Colossian heretics trying to reimpose the Jewish ceremonial law and say that Christians have to keep it. In verse 16, we see two concerns expressed in brief summary, food and festivals. So the first trouble they are facing is in matters of food and drink. The Jewish ceremonial law had certain prohibitions on food. They're specified in Leviticus chapter 11. So for instance, any land animals that the Jews ate, they had to part the hoof they had to be cloven-footed and chew cud so they could eat things like sheep and goats and cattle but they could not eat pork they could not eat rodents they could not eat camels they could eat fish that had fins and scales but they could not eat shellfish they could eat some birds but they couldn't eat predatory birds and so on and so forth now we could look at these dietary restrictions and we might start to think well They're in the Bible, so we should follow them. But the problem is that the Bible itself marks a change. It marks a break from dietary restrictions. We get this in two key passages. The first is in Mark chapter 7. So there in Mark 7, Jesus was criticized by the Pharisees for not adequately following the ceremonial observances and washings that they demanded. But Jesus, as the judge of all things, rules on the continuing validity of these ceremonial laws in verses 18 and 19 of the chapter. He says, "...are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not enter his heart but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods?" So Jesus is essentially there declaring an end to dietary laws. So if you like bacon or shrimp or bacon-wrapped shrimp, this is good news for you. But this idea of the abolition of the dietary laws, we see it again in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. There briefly, Peter is given the command to go and preach the gospel to the Roman centurion, so a Gentile, not a Jew, Cornelius and his family. And part of that commission, part of that vision, is that he is permitted to eat animals that were previously considered unclean. It shows that this barrier of the dietary law between Jews and Gentiles in Christ has been broken down. Now, it also appears that the Colossian heretics are placing undue restrictions on drink. There weren't as many Old Testament ceremonial laws touching on drink issues. There were some prohibitions on drinking wine for Nazarite vows and for priests during their service. Drunkenness was condemned in the Old Testament, just as it is in the New Testament. But it seems that the Colossian legalists are also seeking to bind beyond biblical moral limits on things that are drank. The second issue after food and drink, though taken up in verse 16, is that of festivals. Now you can see the Jewish festivals summarized in Leviticus chapter 23. They are the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Firstfruits, the Feast of Weeks, which is also known as Pentecost, booths, trumpets, and then the Day of Atonement. Those are the ones that are prescribed in Leviticus, others would be added later. And so the Jews would keep these festivals each year to remember the Lord and remember things that he had done for them. So part of the Colossian heresy was demanding that Christians had to keep these festivals as the Jews had. I've mentioned before a movement popular, growing in popularity in our day called Hebrew Roots, And the observance of Hebrew roots claim to be Christian, but then they insist on reading the Bible in a certain Hebrew way, and among other things, they keep all the Hebrew festivals. Um, And they insist on keeping other aspects of the ceremonial law that we as Reformed confess are abrogated. We're no longer required to do them. As our confession teaches in chapter 19, the ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ. It belongs to the types and shadows. We have the reality of them in Christ, and so we don't need to go back. One of the issues that comes up here in Colossians 2 is the issue of Sabbaths. Now here the issue can get a bit more difficult. So the Jews kept the Sabbath on the seventh day. We would know that as Saturday. Some argue in light of this verse in Colossians that there is no need for anyone to keep any Sabbath anymore. Now, there is a sense in which the Sabbath is changed, in which it is transformed in Christ. And yet, because the Sabbath is a moral law, it's given in the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments, there remains for us a day of rest and worship to be observed every week. Because of the significance of Christ's resurrection, this day has moved from the seventh day, Saturday, to the first day, Sunday. That's why we're here on Sunday. This is what was modeled in the early church. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we see that the people were gathered together. There was an assembly. They heard Paul's teaching, his preaching. And there was breaking of bread, the taking of the Lord's Supper, on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians sixteen two adds that the first day is the day of the collection for the needy. We have clear commands in Scripture that we are to worship God by the hearing of his word, by prayer, by singing. This requires a day and a time to do this, but we can do all of these things together. We also have Jesus teaching in Mark four twenty seven and 28, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So works of necessity and mercy may be done on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not to be a burden, but it is a blessing. A day of worship and rest is good for us. It helps us to anticipate the eternal rest and eternal worship into which we will someday enter. It allows us to worship God with clear minds and hearts, away from the distractions and impositions of the world. It refreshes us and prepares us for the week to come. But if a weekly Sabbath observance, in the sense I have described, continues, what is Paul talking about here that the Colossian heretics are imposing concerning Sabbaths that are bad? Well, the festival days that I mentioned before, they were considered high Sabbaths. They were Sabbaths loaded with particular extra observance. Others say that perhaps the Colossian heretics were trying to add the Jewish seventh-day Sabbath observance on top of the apostolic practice, the church practice, of first-day observance. Maybe as with other issues we've seen, the dietary and drink issues, There is some sense in which the Colossians are attaching particular legalism and superstition to Sabbaths as they were to everything else. So Paul's primary concern with this problem of the Colossian heretics and their celebrations, their food and drink and days, is what he writes in verse 17. These laws of ceremonies and food and drink, he writes, are a shadow of things to come but the substance is Christ. When we have the substance, we don't need the shadows. And so those who try to reimpose the shadows, the ceremonial laws, and so forth, they are guilty of legalism, and Paul condemns them for it. But having looked at issues of celebrations, we now turn to our second point, the second aspect of Paul's critique of the Colossian heresy, Speculations, which is taken up in verses 18 and 19. Paul begins here in verse 18 with, Let no one disqualify you. So the Colossians who embraced the heresy, they were putting pressure on the church and the people in it. They were claiming that by their observances, by their rules, they were somehow better. They were closer to God, they were superior. And those who didn't do what they were doing were inferior and disqualified. Now, they're probably not doing this overtly. If someone were to just walk up to you and say, I'm better than you, it's pretty easy to dismiss that. Oh, well, that person's just being rude. They don't know what they're talking about. But the Colossian heretics, the way that they were going about this, was using false humility. They were visibly and publicly depriving themselves, intended in a way to look humble, but was really a way of declaring to the rest of the church, we're better than you, we have what you don't. This humility was false because it was being weaponized against others. It was arrogance masquerading as humility. These were people who deprived themselves They would beat themselves. They otherwise did their deeds of righteousness before men. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be honored by other people. And Paul tells the Colossians not to let those with such false humility get away with it. Now the Colossian heretics not only had false humility, but false worship. Continuing in verse 18, we see a concern over the worship of angels. This is an aspect of the Colossian heresy that, rather than drawing from Judaism, seems to be drawn from the regional pagan and folk religions. Now, this seems to have been a persistent problem. In AD 363, so about 300 years after this book would have been written, a synod was held at Laodicea, which, remember, that's a city close to Colossae. And that synod had to, again, condemn angel worship. Remember that Paul has throughout this book repeatedly and unequivocally declared the preeminence of Christ. That Christ is God and He alone is the head of the church. And because of this, He is preeminent above the angels and alone is worthy of worship. The logic is essentially this. If you are united to Christ, if you receive all the blessings of salvation from Christ, If you have direct access to Christ, why would you worship anything less? But many in Colossae seem to be doing exactly that. Worshipping the creation, worshiping lesser things rather than the Creator God and holding as inferior those who won't go along with them in this error. We are not to worship angels. If you need convincing you can find the opinion of angels themselves twice in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 19, 9 and 10, an angel gives John a command to write, and John, taken by the beauty and majesty of the angel, falls down to worship him. But the angel replies, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servants, and one of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God happens again in Revelation 22, 8 and 9. So twice then, John is commanded not to worship angels, but to worship God. And that's the same thing Paul is getting at here. These Colossian heretics who want to worship angels, they're worshiping the lesser thing, the inferior thing, and they're imposing idolatry. God alone is to be worshipped. No angels, no other people, nothing else. Perhaps the temptation in our day is not so much to worship angels, but our Roman Catholic friends, as one example, make much of their veneration of dead saints or of Mary. Now, they claim that they are providing a different level of honor to the saints and Mary than they do to God, but then they bow to saints, hold festivals for saints, pray to saints. It looks a lot like worship. In fact, it looks a lot like these exact things that Paul is condemning here in Colossians 2. They worship images of God. They bow to images. They reverence images as if they were Christ Himself. They worship other things than the true God. And when they worship God, they do so wrongly. Now another problem of the Colossian heresy is that The person who held to it would be, as Paul writes, intruding into those things which he has not seen. These Kowashian heretics were claiming to have visions. They were claiming to have special knowledge of heavenly things. Now, How often do those who come forward with false teachings do so claiming that they had some sort of direct revelation from God, some sort of spiritual experience that makes whatever they're teaching okay? You could think, for instance, of Muhammad, who claimed visions of Allah and founded the religion of Islam, which has now perpetuated heresy for centuries, or Joseph Smith, who claimed to see the angel Moroni and from these visions built the entire heretical system of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. Claims of visions, claims of unique revelation, claims of spiritual experience, they're often the easy out for false teachers. Well, God told me, an angel told me, so how can what I say be wrong? Now, Paul also calls out the heretics for being puffed up and having fleshly minds. In other words, they are arrogant and boastful because they have this spiritual experience, because they claim to have this special insight, even special revelation beyond what is in Scripture. Now, this wasn't just a problem back then either. As with visions, people can claim other spiritual experiences as the basis for their false teachings. Even a lot of supposed Christian movements, extreme forms of charismaticism, they prioritize feelings and experiences and out-of-body type situations, but in doing so they embrace falsehood. To tie two things together that we have looked at, Ellen G. White, she was a prominent early leader of the Seventh-day Adventists who claims that we must... Observed the Sabbath on Saturday, she claimed to have a vision of the Ten Commandments, with the Fourth Commandment particularly pointed out, and the issue being that Saturday was the day it needed to be kept. And so then the Saturday Sabbath became the practice of Seventh-day Adventists. She claimed some spiritual experience and used it to impose new legalism. This talk of prophecy, visions, experiences, they can be a powerful appeal, but they are no substitute for the truth of Christ. Paul makes this very clear when he writes in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But even if we, so Paul writing about himself and those who worked and taught with him, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. So if you have a vision, it's the most beautiful, powerful thing you have ever experienced. makes you feel like you have never had before, but it is not according to Christ. And his gospel, it is an accursed thing. Direct revelation and visions are no substitute for the truth of the gospel. None of our personal experiences are any substitute for the gospel. None of our speculation into things beyond what is written in scripture are a substitute for the gospel. Either something is according to Christ, as we saw in Colossians 2.8, or it is not. Paul drives this point home in verse 19. Those who cling to these visions and experiences, to these legalisms, they're not holding fast to their head who is Christ. As Christ is the head, the whole body is dependent on him and grows in him. Now Remember that Paul's repeated exhortation to the Colossians in the face of this heresy is to stay where they are, to remain steadfast in the faith, remain steadfast in the gospel that Epaphras has taught them. They are attached to Christ, their source of life. In Christ they live, and in Christ they will grow. To veer off into false teachings is to be severed from the source of life. If a person is decapitated, if a person loses his head... He dies. And to embrace false teaching, even if it produces some really upright living or amazing spiritual experiences, and even if it's backed by angels or whatever else, it's spiritual decapitation. It is death. So we've looked at our first point, celebrations, these legalisms over foods and days and ceremonies. Second, we have looked at speculations Legalism and false teaching based on angels and spiritual experience and all grounded in a false humility. We start to see a picture of this Colossian heresy and why the issues in it don't just affect Colossae in that day, but apply to many things we see now. But now we turn to our third and final point, regulations. So look at verse 20. Paul begins with, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world. Now, remember from a previous message that these idea of basic principles, it was a word used elsewhere in Galatians, and it was connected with the observances of the old covenants. Those things given to a people under age. So, these ceremonial laws. Now, there was also a connection to what we looked at last time with Baptism. Baptism is a sign and seal of the Christian's objective reality of being united to Christ in his death and resurrection. So basically what Paul is saying here is if you've died with Christ to the ceremonial law, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? In other words, you've been delivered from these old and inadequate ways, these types and shadows. Why go back? You have the fulfillment. You have the reality. You have the best thing. Why go for the lesser thing? In verse 21, Paul gives a summary of what these commandments might be. Do not touch. Do not taste. Do not handle. So as we've already talked about, a lot of this legalism centers around dietary restrictions or asceticism, these self-imposed restrictions that Look holy and look pious, but don't really do anything. And they are strictly negative. It's a bunch of things to do not. But they are the things of the types and shadows. They are the things not to go back to. One commentator illustrates this using childhood. A young child has to be told lots of things not to do. Don't touch the hot stove. Don't stick things in power outlets. Don't eat rocks. Don't eat your toys. For an underage child who lacks understanding, this kind of strict regulation is necessary. But the Colossians and all of us in Christ, we have come of age. Like a child grows up and has a better grasp on reality and understands not only what he shouldn't do, but what he should do and why. How often is legalism... Masked like this, it's pretended that keeping laws and regulations are maturity, but in reality it's just a regression. It would be like going back to all the rules you had to keep as a child. It would be to go back to the stages of life before Christ. Now not only are these prohibitions of the Kawasian heretics regression going back to things that aren't needed anymore, but they are futile. As Paul gets at in verse 22, all of these regulations concern transient things, things that don't last. You eat your food and it's gone. Just as we read from Jesus, as we read and as I looked at in Mark chapter 7, Paul is saying something similar. These heretics are so focused on the things that are passing away that they have lost sight of the eternal and have in fact corrupted it into something false. And not only are these regulations inadequate in their purposes, they are inadequate because of their source. These regulations of the Colossian heretics, they're all according to human rules. This is what we see in the rest of verse 22. They're based on some false pretense that man by his righteous living can find his way to God and can earn something from God and can make himself better in the sight of God. This is antithetical. This is in opposition to the gospel. We cannot find our own way to God. We cannot obey our way into right standing with God. The gospel, the good news of this preeminent Christ whom Paul is pleading with the Colossians to cling to is that God came to us. By grace, and by grace alone, we are saved and brought into right relationship with God. We can't get there on our own. No amount of good works, no amount of rules and regulations and law keeping on our part will ever be good enough. Not only will our good works never be good enough, but legalism like this won't even produce the righteous living it aims for. Paul makes this point in verse 23. These regulations, they have an appearance of wisdom. They might look like they work and they're doing good things. On the outside, they seem to bear fruit. They might promote living that looks good. They might be the things that the smart people and the good people are doing. And don't you want to be like them? But These are all self-made religion. They're not the true religion that worships God and Christ. Their origin is in man. Their focus is on the transient things that are passing away. Not only are these regulations of man, but they don't even work for holiness. On the outside, they promote an appearance of discipline and self-control, but Paul says they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Think about it. What sin would most be, would characterize legalists? Pride. See, legalists, they claim this appearance of humility, but then they look down on everyone who doesn't do it their way. That's pride. Pride is sin. While these legalists may at least externally be putting off the appearance of sin, they're cultivating other sins in their hearts. Why? Because it's self-made religion. It's not saving anyone. It's self-righteousness. It's not marked by repentance of sins and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that makes for true, gracious obedience and thankfulness and gratitude. No, this legalistic obedience is completely in vain. So we've looked at... Paul's critique here of the Colossian heresy, its celebrations, its speculations, and its regulations. So, what do we take away from all this? What is the moral of the story for us? Well, it's actually fairly simple. Legalism saves no one, it helps no one. In fact, it is opposed to, it is antithetical to the salvation we have in Jesus Christ by the gospel. Spiritual experiences, prophecy, visions, and so on, they are no true indication of salvation or the work of Christ. The appearance of humility and holiness does not holiness or humility make. Now all of us can be tempted by legalism. We all want to think that we're doing good things and we are good because of the good things we do. But in reality, we are desperate sinners whose righteousness can never stack up. We were all born in sin. We all still sin. Even if we think we're keeping our sins at bay, if we're doing so relying on our own strength, again, that produces the sin the sin of pride, the self-righteousness. Whatever rules we make or follow or keep, whatever experience we're chasing... If it is apart from Christ, it is in vain. Our righteousness is not adequate to save us, no matter how good it is. Our sins are ever before us, but God. God the Son, Jesus Christ, suffered and died for our sins. and He was raised from the dead. And only in him is true religion, righteousness, and life. Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law, and He is our law, our standard of righteousness. We need His righteousness to be credited to us. We need the Savior who knew no sin but became our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Perhaps you come here today as one like those in Colossae. You think that you are being and becoming right with God. And righteous before God because of your own efforts, because of your own rules, because of the things you are imposing on yourself. Friend, I tell you in love, you have been deceived. There is no righteousness before God that will stand other than the perfect righteousness of Christ. Believe in the gospel. Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Reject innovations and regulations that are not according to Christ. Come to Jesus and live. Perhaps today you are facing the pressure of legalism and false teaching. You have friends or family members who claim to have the key to good life or some great spiritual insight or experience, but it is not according to Christ. Only that which is according to Christ will save. Only in Christ is true faith and true religion. Cling to Christ hold fast to his gospel, rest in his gospel, and take this gospel to a lost and dying world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, by which his righteousness becomes our righteousness, because no righteousness that we do or try to do, or think we do, can ever measure up. pray that you would protect us all from the temptations towards pride and legalism. I pray that all things we do, we would do not for ourselves, but for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.